Today's readings are Psalm 50, 1 to 6, and Mark 9, 2 to 9. They can be found on pages 526 and 931 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Psalm 50, verses 1 to 6. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness. Mark 9, verses 2 to 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around... They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, we come into this place from different stories, different places, different kinds of postures before you, different life experiences. Whether we come with great doubt or great faith, great struggle or... um, a lot of gratitude and joy. We ask that you meet us in this place. We find that we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And we're all in that same boat. We're all floating along um, with much less of a rudder in our life than we would like others to think we have. Much more vulnerable, much more fragile. And as we come with our failures often hidden and sitting here this morning, you move towards us with the grace of the cross of Jesus that takes on failure, that takes on imperfection and clothes us with righteousness. You move towards broken people with your grace and we need it so badly this morning. So we ask that you meet us now and speak to us and And teach our hearts to trust you through the words now that are spoken, through the lesson of scripture, that we may walk out of here knowing that we have met you, knowing that we have met your grace, knowing that you are real and that you love us, and also knowing in some way how that applies to our life, how we live differently, how we live more confidently, uh, more trustingly because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Having four children um, and raising them the last 12 years, um, I see how the fear of dark, the fear of the dark is sort of this um, problem in a child's life. And maybe some of you say, well, I'm still afraid of the dark. But this problem, we'll just say in children's lives, that is really impervious to any parental tricks that I might try to throw at it. It's one of the more stubborn issues for a child. There are a lot of things over time that, um, that we gain uh, 
my wife Lisa and I, we gain kind of some skills and some tricks to bring to in, a, in daily life with children. Um, one of them is food issues and eating. Um, you get kind of good at little tricks. You figure out what works over a decade of doing this. And um, we had some people over who had smaller kids and we were getting, having pizza out. And I just um, started getting the pizza ready for my two littlest kids. And these friends of ours stopped and looked at what I was doing. And they just, they just like, were just staring at what I was doing with the pizza. I was cutting it into small pieces with a scissors. Um, and they just were like, wait, that's genius. That's what you do. And they, they were like having this aha moment and talking about it. Okay, okay, but that's what you do. That's what you do with children. You cut, okay, cut it up with the scissors. We had no idea. The other, the other day, I, um, about a week and a half ago now, um, my littlest ones weren't eating their rice and beans, and I got them to eat it by telling them that it, it was poisonous, rice and beans. <laughs> and uh, I mean, just instinctively, I knew that's what I had to tell them. And then we found out also, because um, we got the doctor on the phone, well, on the little toy phone, we got the doctor on, and the doctor said that what I really should keep them from eating all of it because then what would have to happen is we'd have to give them the medicine, which was an ice cream sandwich from the freezer. <laughs> and they ate all their food that night. So, you, so these tricks you learn to apply to these situations, but the fear of the dark, I have nothing to bring against that. It's, and it's, it's a daily part of life. It's every day. It's, it, you know, once we're putting kids to bed, it's could you close the closet door? You know, could you put the nightlight on? Don't close my door all the way. Leave it open. You know, and if we try to close it a certain amount, then a little hand comes and is opening it up again. There's nothing I have to bring against this, this universal fear of the dark. And it's interesting that in the Bible, there seems to be a, a very opposite fear. There's a universal fear of the glorious brightness of God. It's different. The, the light, the shining light of God's glory is something that in the Bible and in biblical times... Uh, people were afraid of. So many stories include uh, fear when it comes to God's presence really showing itself. God's presence, God's glory is, is identified as a problem. You know, when the finite, imperfect beings that we are get fully exposed to the infinite, holy goodness of God... It's viewed as, as a dangerous encounter. It's viewed as not safe terrain for us who are finite and imperfect. And you can go all the way back, perhaps you can even go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve um, fell into sin by disobeying something that God said. And what was the first thing they did was they were hiding from God's presence. But you move on and you see, um, you see at Mount Sinai after they've come out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and God is appearing and showing himself to Moses. Moses can go. He's allowed to go into the presence of God. He's allowed to climb up the mountain. He's allowed to go to the tabernacle. And at one point he spends 40 days on top of this cloud-covered mountain where there's, there's thunder and there's a lot of tangible expressions of God's glory. And when Moses comes down 40 days later, his face is shining bright and emitting this light so much so that he has to have a, a veil when he comes down the mountain from then on out. 
And eventually, through those interactions, we learn that the people of Israel actually plea with God. They plead with him to not interact with them in that way anymore. It feels too dangerous. Could, could you please do, you know, meet with us in a different way? Could you not do this anymore? This, this appearance on the mountain is too dangerous. Somebody's going to get killed. Somebody's going to get hurt, seriously. <clears throat> and so, when Peter and James and John, we read on the Mount of Transfiguration in our story, when, when they see the glory and the shining brightness coming from Jesus, it tells us that they are terrified. They are frightened. They did not know, G- Peter did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter's not alone. He falls in line with this long pattern in the Bible. Um, and Peter's fear actually means that at least he gets the dilemma. He understands the dilemma. And in many ways, that's a good thing. Today, there's really not a whole lot of grappling with the problem of transcendence. It's not something we grapple with a whole lot. And the Bible is a very different period of time where it is common that people um, have a posture towards God of, here I am, reveal what I can't see, show me something of yourself, show me the whole realm of things that are out there that I don't know about, that you, God, must have some insight on. It's this posture, here I am, what's out there, show, reveal. And our posture today is actually quite opposite. We, we look out to the world and we say, let me declare to you what I have come up with. That's, our, that's our, kind of our basic difference in our posture. When we talk, even when we talk about spiritual things and someone says, let me tell you what I believe about spiritual things. In some ways we have the audacity without any sense of irony, you'll hear someone say... <clears throat> You know, this, after a lot of deep thinking and a, and a long journey for the last decade, I've, this is what I've come to be able to believe about God. That this is what fits for me. And in some ways, you know, we all kind of say, yeah, that is how, that's kind of how we talk, isn't it? But you can almost imagine the, the God of the universe saying sarcastically, oh, Hallelujah. Let me take a break a minute from spinning the galaxies so we can throw a party and celebrate that Mark has come to a conclusion about me (laughs) that he's comfortable with, (laughs) right? (coughs) We just, you know, our conclusions that we come up with, they don't tend to gear towards transcendence either. We're much more comfortable within the realm of that that Joan Osborne song What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? That's a lot more along the lines of where we go with our ideas of what we like, what we'd like God to be. Ours is not the God of shining glory robes, but ours is much more of the God of uh, surfer Jesus wearing a tattered tank top and sandy flip-flops. And after having just woken up from a nap, we ask him, what do you think about my life? And he says, dude, just roll with it. 
You're good, man. You're good. Just catch a wave. You're good to go. And we kind of, we say, I'm good? I'm good? What about that thing I just did? He says, no worries, man. Just, just live and let live. It's sort of our, our idea of God. That's how we kind of create things. And when we create God, we almost, one of the first things we do is we strip away the transcendence dilemma that Peter grabs hold of and is frightened by. Peter sees it in verse 5. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter sees that something must be done. Something has to be done because this is good to be in this presence of God, but it's too dangerous. We need some protective mechanisms in place so that we can channel this goodness without the danger. In many ways, he's seeing things accurately. To feel the transcendence gap is a good thing. And in many ways, that's the posture of Lent that we begin to enter into. Feeling the transcendence gap and entering into that because that's the beginning of a real faith, of a good faith. I am unworthy. If there is such a thing as a God spinning the galaxies, I fall short. I am tarnished compared to this God. And in today's world, for many of us, the bottleneck of spiritual growth is failure to enter into the transcendence dilemma. Insufficient awareness of my own misery and corrosion, really the corrosion of every single aspect of my life as the Bible talks about sin, as it's something sort of like yeast that just works into every aspect of our life, every possible angle, every possible thing that we're up to. Corrosion of our motives and our hearts and our lives and our activities. Peter is aware of this transcendence gap. But what he's doing, what he's verbalizing that I think the story as it is written in the Gospel of Mark sort of chuckles at, that he didn't know what he was saying. What he's proposing really is to reach backwards at a time when God, the God of the Bible and the God of Jesus, is about to move forward into a whole new chapter. And Peter's wanting to go backwards. He's referencing tabernacles. And with that, the whole Jewish system of sacrifices and religious rituals that, that deal with this transcendence gap and basically say, let's create the system now in which we can approach that holy mountain and come with our offering and come with our gifts and let's hope that we can, with this offering, appease the scary deity, the unsafe, dangerous presence of God. Let's bring these offerings and perhaps we can walk away knowing we've made things right, that we won't get zapped by the mountain. Let's maybe bring this, if I bring this, maybe not just a pizza deity, but if I bring this offering, then maybe I gain his favor. Maybe I get what I've been wanting in life. That's what Peter's referencing. That's the directions he's going. And, it, and we all do it. We're all right in there with Peter every day because our hearts have a default drive for works righteousness. 
the, uh, we are constantly contorting just about every interaction with God in that direction without even realizing it. And you're probably going to be tempted in any way you're celebrating Lent to contort any of those activities to this approach. Maybe I can appease God. Maybe I can do something to bridge the transcendence gap. And Peter, along with us, gets a fast answer to his desire to kind of go backwards. Because as soon as Peter says that, what do we read? The cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. A big statement there is made. No, Peter, and to all of us who want to contort everything towards appeasing God with our actions, no, we're not going to stay on this mountain and there's not going to be shelters built around these three figures because all that's needed now is this son whom I love. And you're going to walk down this mountain and Jesus alone is going to pave the way to your ability to reside safely in the presence of God. That's the dramatic aha moment of this, this whole story. Is when that cloud comes, the voice comes, and what happens after all of it? Boom, there we are again. Just Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus alone walking down the mountain. There's a gigantic pivot that is being made. On the one hand, there's a big statement in the story to Peter and to all of us and all those early Christians that this is the same God of that old Jewish story. It's the same God. The mountain, the cloud, the shining glory. Elijah, Moses, you know, Moses represents sort of the the first five books of the Bible. Elijah represents the prophets. So there's this sort of representative nature to this, to salvation history. There's the mountain, there's the glory. It all is alluding to this ancient God of glory in the Old Testament. So we're in the same story, yet a huge pivot is being made when Jesus is the only one standing at the end, walking down the mountain with them. There's a new chapter. There's an absolutely new chapter, and Jesus makes this pivot off the mountain that is substantial. Because the current predicament, yes, it's true, God is not safe for broken mankind. But now Jesus will usher you safely into the presence of God. Which is why verse 9 is so important. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. These kind of secretive statements from Jesus are always, can always be so puzzling. Why is he always telling them to be quiet, not to tell anyone? <clears throat> but in many ways, this one makes sense because the brightness and the glory of Jesus will only make the most sense after his death and his resurrection. Because that's how actually, and this surprises Peter and everyone since, the glory of Jesus is most revealed not in this moment on the mountain when he's shining, but in his moment of darkness. The hour of Christ's greatest revelation of his glory 
the Bible tells us. His hour of glory, his final hour of glory, is as he takes on the suffering of mankind and he suffers on his way to the cross and dies and then rises again from the tomb. That is his greatest hour of glory. Now think about this, friends. Think about the story. <clears throat> Jesus hears, as he's on that mountain, he hears the safest possible words any of us could hear spoken by a voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Verbalized to Jesus on that mountain are these words of safety that we all, that everything we do clamoring to try to get good with God is an attempt really to have him say those words to us and for us to live confidently knowing that those words might be true of us. Well, the reason that Jesus' glory is shown most as he goes to the cross and as we find him coming out of the tomb alive is because as he goes to the cross for us, he is ushering us into those exact words from the Father. Those become words now spoken over us. He's turning us all into God's children, adopted and enfolded in in a way that's now legitimate, definitive, Forever. You don't have to wonder if these words apply now to you. Jesus has made them apply. And so all of us need this reminder. I need it, you need it. We need, we need to stop twisting our interactions with God and with Jesus backwards like Peter. Trying to twist every interaction with God into a way that says, maybe I can appease, maybe I can get better, maybe I can make things right with God. We need the rewiring of the grace of God to teach us to assume this voice is spoken over our lives. I mean, should we, should you and I be in danger before the scary mountain of God? Yes, we're imperfect. Except that Jesus has redeemed and brought you with him up the mountain now. Are you unworthy of God's presence? You might say, I, but I feel so unworthy. Sure, yes you are. Except that he has decided you should wake up each day as his daughter or son. So much so that you qualify for his full inheritance. That's how the Bible talks about what our new status before God. Should you examine your, your miserable spiritual condition during Lent? Yes, go there but go there only in hopes of coming out awestruck with the grace of God through Jesus. Let's pray. God of grace, <clears throat> we look towards your grace and we invite you to keep making more and more sense of us, of our lives and our identity through the cross of Jesus. Whether we're brand new to considering what it means to be your child or whether this is an old, old message for us. We pray that it may be fresh again and real again as we consider our sin, as we consider our waywardness and flawedness. May we be filled with joy and delight to know how you have righted the ship and brought us home, how you made us acceptable through your action and not our own, and you call us your children. Reaffirm this identity through your Holy Spirit 
and in a little bit as we come to the table of grace, may you use uh, the bread and the cup to remind and assure us of our identity and our status before you. In Jesus' name we pray.